The work of this church in the world is realized through the generous financial support of all who call this place home. Along with the gifts and time and talent, ours is a shared ministry. You have a role to play here. Church membership is open to all. For more information, go to uusf.org. At the beginning of the pandemic, <clears throat> when the most restrictive spell of the shutdown was lifted, <clears throat> my husband started doing the one thing he was allowed to do to break free of the jail of our apartment. The one thing that many of us did, of course, he started to take walks, long walks. Taking long walks has actually been a part of his life in spells once, in fact, around the time he turned 40, he was in one of those periods. So for his 40th birthday, he invited friends to walk with him from one tip of Broadway in Manhattan to the other tip, an all-day pilgrimage in the urban jungle. This time on these walks, he started noticing, as so many of us did, the natural world that was always planted all around us in the city in its streets, in its parks, and he started photographing it with his phone. And then he started sending those photos <clears throat> up to five, a bouquet, he called it, a small bouquet every day, to his mother and then also to mine and then to a beloved aunt, all of whom we were very grateful, were being super careful, sequestered at home. And so it was this little act of connection and beauty brought to the safety of their phones and their email accounts. And Rohit even started looking up the flowers and sending them all the names, the common one, the Latin one, careful never to repeat a flower, he said, unless it was a particularly extraordinary version of one. That never-repeat rule, he thought, would mean that his commitment to them would end in a couple of weeks. But it didn't. The flowers, and therefore the photos, stretched on for a month, and then two, ultimately 84 days in total. He is sure he was finding all these new species of flowers. The challenge got harder as time went on, but so too did the amazement. And the discovery of what flowers could look like, how they could be present in a thicket of spines, or one so tiny you had to lean in to make sure it was, in fact, a flower on your knees, phone zoomed in as closely as it could. Blue and orange and fuchsia and bright yellow, every color of the rainbow, sometimes wildly mixed together like an artist's palette, rinsing under the faucet, all the colors running together. These walks, this challenge, started to bridge something else too, I think, as we talked about it, a more adoring connection to the place, the place we had chosen to call home. 
like it deepened that connection. In a way, I don't think either of us would have anticipated. Writer and Bay Area resident Anne Lamott <clears throat> has her advice for writers start like the photographer of flowers I just described to invite people to look up close and specifically Bird by Bird, her book on writing is entitled. Much like the writer Annie Dillard's book of essays and encounters with nature, teaching a stone to talk, Lamott's advice and Dillard's essay are about choosing to write what you see and know from up close, intimately. Lamott learned some of this advice from her father, who was also a writer and a teacher of writing. She says, quote, he could go any place he wanted with a sense of purpose, my father. One of the gifts of being a writer is that it gives you an excuse to do things, to go places and to explore. Another is that Writing motivates you to look closely at life. Writing taught my father to pay attention. And so he teaches her, and she teaches those she instructs to pay attention, to see bird by bird, flower by flower up close. Scott Stillman, a lover of the outdoors and a writer, a lover especially of the wilder places, wrote a book about some of his wildest long hikes. It's titled Wilderness, the Gateway to the Soul. Of his time outdoors, Stillman writes, I'm not here to tame or conquer, I'm here to connect. And connect he does because there's no other distraction where, in the places where he goes, these empty landscapes that are beyond cell phone towers and where he's hiking alone. And so he begins to see with greater attention all of the life and landscape that is around him. One morning while hiking in Colorado, Stillman describes waking in his tent, pitched the night before, as I recall, at the edge of a ravine. And he wakes to see where he finds himself to really see it in the sun of the morning. He writes, a low, a low fog blankets the morning in purple hue. Beyond this island and sky where I've pitched my camp over the ledge, one world disappears and another begins. I crawl on my hands and knees and stomach to get a closer look. When I peer over, I freeze at a glimpse of inescapable beauty. Cow Creek Canyon plummets 4,000 feet straight down to the canyon floor. This is earth in its most raw state of natural beauty, perfection in every detail, terrain that can never be tamed nor developed, too wild, too unreachable, too sacred. Any improvement here? 
would be devastation. How long, he writes later in the chapter, how long can I tolerate such beauty, such bliss before it swallows me whole? Of course, the idea of any land as wild and uncultivated is a myth in North America. As David Truer, author of Heartbreak at Wounded Knee, Native American, and author also of a recent article in the Atlantic Magazine about national parks and an appeal that they be returned to the native peoples. As he points out, when John Muir was describing what he and others thought of as a virginal landscape, North America had not been a wilderness for 15,000 years. The stunning valleys and vistas of Yellowstone and Yosemite and every other corner that took away European colonizers and visitors' breath was cultivated beauty, at least in part. But the landscapes, often the ones long ago identified as sacred understandably, did and do still take the breath away, don't they, of those of us who have the chance to behold them? Sacred is something we feel in our bones, isn't it? In certain places, so much more obviously so. Shaken out of who we knew ourselves to be, Stillman would say of such moments, reminded of who we are, really are. Like that person in the Louise Gluck poem that we read this morning, that person who is in a world of industry and machines, halting by the meadow, by the edge, in, in full view of all those daisies, lured back in that moment, you can almost feel in the poem, into this fundamental relationship that they are in danger of forgetting. But, but the wilderness, Nature, always wildly insistent on connection. And thank God. And it doesn't just happen in grand, large places, right? Like Yosemite, looking up at El Capitan. Though Thomas Starr King, too, would be moved by that place enough to join in the efforts to make it into a national park. A complicated choice, we now realize, but better than the options that might have been considered then. That sense of awe and wild, that invitation into connection that draws us back into relationship, fundamental relationship with larger life. It doesn't just happen only in big, magnificent scenes or the expanse of a meadow. This week, I went to the optometrist. My doctor is a competent, gracious, professional, born and raised in a city, this city. And my eyes have gotten noticeably worse during COVID, so it was time to get my vision checked. All that staring at screens up close, well, it had had the depressing effect that I 
had noticed and guessed, which is that it has permanently messed with my eyes. Please remember the 20-20-20 rule. Every 20 minutes, find a point 20 or more feet away and look at it for 20 seconds. Yeah, well, the bad news was delivered. I got my new prescription for distance glasses. And I was about to leave when I realized he hadn't tested me for glaucoma. And why not make sure everything is in order that should be in order? The blow test where they puff air into your eyes, it's dangerous these days, all related to the virus, of course. But he asked, since I asked, if I wouldn't mind trying some new equipment he had just acquired as a substitute for that test. He would take a picture inside my eye. So I agreed and we went into a room and I pressed my face against the machine and stared into a light and 30 seconds later this, this picture appeared on a screen. There it was in all its glory, a peach-colored landscape of the inside of my eye, this universe that's normally hidden, that's crisscrossed delicately by in any number of capillaries that weave through the space, bringing it blood and keeping it alive. All of it doing all this work, I said, that's going on all the time and I never bother to say thank you. He laughed and then he leaned to look in with me at the picture. There, he said, his voice suddenly getting a little quieter. There, do you see that? That little light-colored circle? That's the optic nerve. It's like the belly button to the brain. Everything goes through there. Diane Ackerman, in her Natural History of the Senses, she writes, with awe, the realization that 70% of the sense receptors in our bodies cluster in the eyes. Did you know that half of the surface of our cortex in our brain is processing visual information? The doctor and I, we both stared at this powerful reality, delicate, adjusting to pandemics and age, conditioning our very sense of the world and understanding of it those of us with sight. It is a wonder, he said. The eye is a wonder. And then, after a heartbeat, my competent doctor turned and led me out of the room and we left it and the image behind. But that moment stuck with me felt like in that moment I had met this person who wasn't just a carpenter of the human body measuring parts and fixing them, though that would be all I needed and enough to ask for. But I got to see this person whose job put him up against the meadow and mountain of the body, astride the glacier of the body, you might say which is the same, I suppose, as any other vantage point on nature that we can have, having the ability somehow to make us go quiet, as he did.
describing the optical nerve in a hushed tone like he was talking in church. Nature humbles us. It right-sizes us, doesn't it? One way or the other, whether we want to be right-sized or not, nature and body, it will right-size us, put us in perspective. I think the goal, though, is to listen and to answer the call, that insistent call for connection and relationship rather than fight it, right? To fall into it. Train our eye for it, or our heart, or our nose, or our ears, or our hands. The way Wendell Berry did, right? Falling in love, as we all probably, or many of us do know the story, with his now famous farm in Kentucky, Barry and his wife bought the farm on the land that the Barry family had known for generations in Port Royal in Kentucky, purchased that farm as a place that he would fix up and they would get away to on the weekends. But, but eventually, Wendell Barry found life on the farm so compelling that he would give up his teaching position at the University of Kentucky to live and farm the land full time doing so still by horse or years with horse and old worn and repaired tools in the almost lost art he fears of what he calls husbandry. A great word, husbandry, conjures up to me marriage to a place for better or for worse. In a BBC radio interview in 2017, Barry, the famous poet and essayist and now farmer and certainly environmentalist, speaking from that farm, his home, said, quote, everything of value in this place is at stake and at risk, and that it was considered by most people as a kind of raw material that ought to be subjected to what they now call creative destruction for the sake, typically, of a better life in the future. But for Barry, like for our Native American and Indian siblings, land, the land he knows and is married to, is not something to be traded in or extracted from. It is a mountain he loves, he'll use that word, with intimate connection to its topsoil and its winds. He sees it the way my husband saw those flowers for 84 days straight, all the varieties of them on the streets and parks of San Francisco, and how we fall in love through that kind of knowing, don't we? The way my uncle, who is a logical scientist and businessman, fell in love and falls ever more in love with birds by their calls, recording them and cataloging them online so that others might fall in love too. The way love calls us into all these ways of care and witness. How when we let ourselves behold, hear, know something, we are drawn into what it means to participating in environmental salvation, right? Because 
You take care of the things you love, as Barry rightly says. Maybe also, he says, there is a real possibility that I consider all the time that you don't love something, that if you don't love something, you can't know it. So this power to behold, to hear, to see, to touch, to know a place, a piece of the earth, to take away the distractions when we need to, to engage in the ritual practices, to go to the places that allow us to be right-sized, to fall in love anywhere. It's crucial. And it raises the question for me, what places do I know, really know? What places do you know? If our salvation depends on that kind of knowing and falling in love, falling into the embrace of the insistently wild pursuit of connection that nature calls out to us with, then we have to find it if we don't already know it. There is a photograph in Truer's article in The Atlantic magazine this month that one about the natural parks the national parks and the call to restore them to the native peoples whose lands often sacred lands they were it's a photograph of a man in a suit who's sitting at a big desk you know with a blotter and a fountain pen with ink and he's signing a document a white man and around him are all these other men in suits and ties too, I think mostly white, it's not always obvious, or easy to tell, photograph is old. I looked at the image quickly while reading the article, I figured I'd got the trope, it was a classic moment of some bill becoming law or some agreement being finalized, some official moment, but I'd missed something that I didn't realize until I read the caption at the bottom. George Gillette, it said, left. The chairman of the Fort Berthold Indian Tribal Count Business Council weeps as more than 150,000 acres of the Fort Berthold Reservation in North Dakota are signed away for the Garrison Dam and Reservoir Project. Looking again, there on the left side of the picture, like they indicated, in a pinstriped suit was Gillette. His glasses in his right hand, he holds against his chest. His left hand is across his eyes in this protective gesture and the side of his mouth, only slightly visible, is twisted in grief. There is this person, I thought, who knew a place, a whole expanse of it, enough to love it, surrounded by people who from their lack of expression in this moment knew nothing at all about that. Not even by compassionate extension Maybe ones who thought they were wise enough to see instead the sheer 
logical equation of land in a life that was much bigger than the earth. Never a better photo was taken to remind us of what we are all called to remember. To know, to be in awe, to come to know some corner of the world so intimately, to have it make a claim on us, have us fall in love, fall into the requirements of service and salvation of it, such that we would weep in such a way to see it sacrificed to anything but itself. That's our chance at salvation. So this Earth Day, I invite us all to stay in touch with the places we know and love and fall ever more in love with close beholding to the beauty around us, within us, to the sacred earth of which we are a part. Amen. The work of this church in the world is realized through the generous financial support of all who call this place home. Along with the gifts and time and talent, ours is a shared ministry. You have a role to play here. Church membership is open to all. For more information, go to uusf.org.